you are listening to the ai ready healthcare podcast i'm your host anirban i lead a research group in technical university of darmstadt in germany where we translate ai solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery the purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced ai research from the mikai society here i talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of ai in healthcare opinion is whoever said it anything said here is not medical advice together let's make healthcare ai ready though i know that evening's empire has returned into sand vanished from my hand left me blindly here to stand but still not slipping my awareness amazes me i'm branded on my feet i have no one to meet and the ancient empty streets too dead for trimming hey mr tambourine man play song for me i'm not sleepy and there is no place i'm going to hey mr tambourine man play song for me in the jingle jangle morning i will come following you take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship my senses have been stripped my hands can't feel to creep my toes to numb to step wait only for my boot heels to be wandering i'm ready to go anywhere i'm ready for to fade into my own parade cast your dancing spell my way i promise to go under it hey mr tambourine man play a song for me i'm not sleepy and there is no place i'm going to hey mr tambourine man play a song for me in the jingle jangle morning i will come following you you are listening to a few verses from bob dylan's tambourine man and now we proceed to this episode of the podcast ai ready healthcare welcome to the first season of ai ready healthcare podcast i am anirban your host your co-host today is henry hi i'm today's co-host perfect and we have a wonderful day here in darmstadt and it's even more wonderful because we have today a great great scientist from the mikai society whom i have the opportunity to know very closely for a long long time professor tianming liu welcome to the podcast professor liu is a distinguished research professor in the university of georgia usa where his focus is primarily on neuroimaging and these days ai aspects of neuroimaging he was actually quite recently 
the board member of Mikhai. And in Mikhai 2019, he was the general chair. That's the last live Mikhai that we all attended back in China. So I guess that was a great, great time we had. And then we are missing that. So Professor Liu left us high and dry on a nice place. And since then, uh, 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 we haven't done it. So yeah, welcome, Professor Liu, to this podcast. This is quite wonderful to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much, Alibam, for the invitation. And thank you so much to uh, Henry for co-hosting this discussion. As I'm really honored and happy to uh, share some of uh, my experience in neuroimaging and AI in neuroimaging. And this is a fast-growing area. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities. And of course, there are also a lot of challenges where we can discuss both. Perfect. So that's really wonderful. So I guess the first question would be for our audience to know a little bit about your earlier years, how you became who you currently are, and how was the journey overall from China to America? Yeah, sure. So um, I think this is a long story. I uh, started my career in the medical image analysis field since 2002 when I became a postdoc in the uh, University of Pennsylvania, which uh, was headed by Christos Davidikas, Professor Christos Davidikas and Professor Dean Gonsen. And both of them recruited me from a first PhD students in image processing and video analysis to neural imaging field. I think that's a big transition, you know. I did my PhD in Shanghai Jiaoqi University and uh, work on adaptive video streaming uh, in Microsoft Research. I was a uh, Microsoft Research Fellow from 2000 to 2002. So I had uh, the opportunity to work on video compression, video delivery, video streaming on that topic, which was quite hard at that time. And at that time, I was very interested in how the human brain, human region system perceive video. The motivation at that time was that the internet was not quite stable. So sometimes if the internet is, is not stable, the bandwidth is dropping. So you have to drop some frames of bits from the video and the image stream. So what are we going to do? We just randomly drop them or we can build up a kind of model to uh, better drop some unimportant bit of byte. So at that time, I worked on what I call the perceptual modeling of video streams. So the idea was very straightforward. We want to look at how the brain perceives video stream, right? If there's no motion, like what we are doing on this screen, not much motion, then we can drop the frame from 30 frames per second to like five or even like five to six frames per second. So the human eyes, Human vision cannot really sense the kind of quantity drop. So that's kind of the model we developed at that time. So this is very similar to the JPEG compression, right? When you do the JPEG compression, you drop those bits that is really not important to human vision, and you cannot sense the quantity degradation. So that was the idea. So at that time, I became interested in the human brain. We want to understand how the brain understands video, how the brain understands uh, image quality, so then when I joined University of Pennsylvania in 2002, I worked on two years on the uh, neural imaging. So at that time, I was involved in two R1 grant. Uh, PI was uh, Christos and uh, Dingang uh, was one of the uh, major players in, in those two grants. So 
I started, I started working on the color sleep cortex folding pattern analysis because at that time, medical imaging registration was a, a very important topic. So I worked on the brain imaging registration. You know, this is a super hard problem. So I worked on two years on that problem. We tried to register one brain to another. We want to try, try to register one brain scan at one time and another image scan a second time. That's called longitudinal mapping because we were working on the aging of the brain. We work on the BLSA data. So we look at the longitudinal change of the brain structures. So for example, the brain shrink and shrinking like a brain um, atrophy type of measurement. So we need the longitudinal registration brains. That's a relatively easy problem, even though it's hard. At the least, we are matching the same brain in two time points. So we kind of look at the morphology changes and deformation field to measure those kind of uh, changes. Another project I worked on was the registration of a health brain to a brain with tumor. That's quite challenging because topologically, geographically, they are very different uh, features between two brains. So I was struggling on this problem, you know, even though even we work on the same, uh, no, the two brains that is healthy, you can see tremendous variability between two brains in terms of cortical folding. Sometimes in some area you have two folds, in another brain you have three folds. How are you going to match the two folds to three folds? So that's kind of the fundamental problem I have been interested in for over 20 years, almost 20 years, 19 years already. And that kind of defined my career, pretty much defined my career in the past 18 years, 19 years. So then after two years postdoc training in Christos and the Dingans group in UPenn, I uh, moved to Boston, uh, Harvard Medical School, uh, Brigham Women Hospital. I stayed there for three years and I had the opportunity to collaborate with and work with uh, world-class neuroradiologists and neuroscientists and neurologists. So I learned a lot about the brain from the neurobiology perspective, molecular biology perspective, neurogenetic perspective. So I know I try to understand why the brain has so much variability, right, in terms of folding. So what is the origin of those uh, variability patterns? Of course, I learned more about the brain disease, like Alzheimer's disease, like autism, uh, like schizophrenia. So it's even more challenging to look at the variability in the brain disease, in hundreds of brain disease, okay? So I started to realize that this is a lifelong problem to work on. So then I started to apply for an NIH career award. So, and... Uh, I was lucky to uh, receive the NIH K1 Career Award in 2007. I think that is really a milestone for me, kind of a jump for my career. Then I uh, moved to Houston Methodist Hospital and Cornell Medical School with my uh, PI, Stephen Wong. He has been a tremendous help for me, and he uh, mentored me from all kinds of aspects, from technical, from clinical application from the working environment in medical school, in academic and medical center, how to write a grant, how to collaborate with top scientists. I learned a lot. Then after one year short stay in Houston, I moved to University of Georgia. So that's another big jump to independent uh, research researcher and uh, assistant professor. 
when I joined UG in 2008, um, I started think about how to start my independent academic career, what kind of problem I should work on. So the first problem I started to work on is the called a folding mechanism. So I want to study how the brain develop itself into very convoluted folding patterns. Okay, so I collaborate with a few students to look at the computational simulation of a cortical folding process. And at the same time, we use longitudinal fetus brain imaging data to initialize the folding pattern uh, simulation. So at that time, we start to realize the brain skull is a very important constraint for brain to fold itself into different patterns. So we published a few papers on that direction. And then in 2012, we uh, published, uh, I think, a very important paper in cerebral cortex. So in that paper, we come up with a new theory about the cortical folding. So that is called an axon pushing theory. So we observe that the axon fibers mostly concentrate on cortical gyra instead of salsa. So then we hypothesized that the outward gyro pattern might be pushed by the axon growth. So that is a brand new theory. And that paper was published as the cover page in cerebral cortex. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this theory is in complete opposite direction of a very well-known theory published in 1997 by David Van Anson in Nature. So what are we going to do? Our series on the opposite direction of the very well-known series, very well-known series published in Nature. That paper has been cited by a couple thousand times. And we are a new group. This is a new research direction. So since then, we have been working on this problem continuously by looking at more lower level or micro scale level imaging data, including the mouse, including monkey, including chimpanzee even including fluid flight that is drosophila. So we are trying to collect a biomechanical, biological evidence to support our theory, okay? So following that, suitable cuts paper, we published another over maybe a dozen papers already. So look at all kinds of scales, all kinds of animal models. And it's interesting that most of these studies suggest that our theory might be correct. And another major direction I have been working on is called the computational modeling simulation of cardiac folding in collaboration with another professor in UGA, uh, Professor Xin Chao Wang. We have been collaborating on this topic uh, for six, seven years. So he and his students work on the finite element modeling of the uh, brain. So we simulate the brain by finite models, and then we can initiate the model by boundary conditions. And then we can test our theory, our folding theory, by simulation, because this very challenge, um, a lot of challenges if we want to acquire the development uh, images of the brain if they, it's in the fetal stage or in the uh, infant stage. So if we do the simulation, we can easily manipulate the change in the model and the parameters that we can look at the mechanism of the cortical folding. And unfortunately, we discover a lot of new insight by the simulation. And uh, we recently received a NSF CRCNS grant to look at the cholesterol theory of the folding. So after around the 12 year study, we finally get one NSF grant um, to look into the theory and further develop and validate this theory using 
largest scale simulation and imaging data set. So that is kind of one major line of my research in the past 18 years, past 19 years. Okay, so that's how I developed my career by working on the same problem for over a decade, continuously improve this model, continuously improve this theory by looking at all kinds of angles, more multi-modality, multi-speech, primitive brain, animal brain, human brain, disease brain. I think that's kind of a message I want to share with like next generation young scientists, the students. So pick up an interesting problem, pick up an important problem, keep on, on working this problem, making progress. I think sooner or later you will reach somewhere that people will respect your academic career in terms of publication, in terms of ground, in terms of promotion, tenure. That's the secondary thing. So I think the most important thing is do good science, do rock science. Okay. That's kind of sharing of my experience in terms of 19 years experience in the United States as a postdoc all the way to for a professor. All right. Thank you very much for this for this extensive introduction and also for the advice. I think it's very important for young scientists and young students like me to hear such advice from experienced uh, members of the Mikai Society. So maybe connecting to your introduction, I would like to ask a question about your current research focus of neuroimaging. Basically, what actually triggered your uh, interest in neuroimaging and neuroscience? So what was the initiating thing or the, the point where you said you would like to work on this very problem? So as I mentioned in the uh, last uh, answer to your question, to anyone's question, I started working on the brain folding modeling and simulation and also look at the individual variability of the cortical protein. So that is kind of intriguing problem, kind of motivating my past uh, 18 years research. So there are two fundamental problems over here after... I have been working on this problem for over a decade. First problem is, what are the common architecture across all human brains? So that means your brain, my brain, anybody's brain, what are the common features? We know we are all human beings. We know we have kind of normal function like memory, cognition, vision system, language system. We have some common, a lot of common features. We want to quantitate and map those common architectures. So that's the first question. And those common features will be the foundation for us to compare all individual brains, health brains, and disease brains. So if you look at the neuroradiology, look at the neurology, psychiatry, when people say this is schizophrenia, this is Alzheimer's disease, we are implicitly compare the patient brain to all the populations. Why this is a patient? Why this is our time? Why this is deep from the temporal dimension? Because we are looking at the comparable features between all human brains. So we need to map what can be compared, what cannot be compared. So that is a common feature, common pattern, like temperature, your temperature, my temperature, we can compare it. The second question is what are the individual features or individual patterns? So for example, in some of our brain, my brain area, I may have three folds, you may have two folds. Okay, so they are not comparable at all. So each brain is different. Each brain is an individual separate brain. So really challenging question is how to disentangle the common pattern from the individual pattern. 
Okay, so this is a fundamental question. So I'd like to uh, introduce two of my work. One is called the BICO system. Based on diffusion test imaging, we de develop a couple of descriptors called trace map that we can map hundreds of brain landmarks that are common and consistent across all human brains. So the basic idea is if you can identify this landmark in all brains, and this landmark shows very similar structure connectivity pattern across all human brains, then we say, hey, this is the landmark that we can find it, predicted, located in all human brains. Then those landmarks will provide a basis for the comparison across all human brains. So that's called a commonality or common features across human brains. And the question is, how many of those landmarks are there in the human brain? We really don't know, okay? So think about this question in two extremes. One extreme is if you look at the neural network, there are about 100 billion neurons in the brain, in human brain, 100 billion neurons. If you want to compare the individual neuron by my, in my brain, you brain, there's no comparison, right? Can you map one brain, one neuron in your brain to another neuron in my brain? There's no correspondence, they're not comparable. They're located in different locations, they're doing different functions. There's no compression at all if you go to individual neural network, right? And another extreme is if you look at the brain, two hemispheres, left and the right hemisphere. Everybody has two hemispheres, we can do comparison. For example, I can compare my left brain to your left brain, compare my right brain to your right brain. We can establish such correspondence across all human brains. That's another extreme. So what is the best intermediate level to represent the commonality and the individuality? That's a fundamental question. We cannot look at the brain sphere scale because that's too coarse. Meaningless, sometimes meaningless, right? We cannot look at the individual neural network. It's too fine scale, meaningless. What is the best scale? Maybe we can look at the cutting folding, like a gyro socket level, or maybe we can go even further into the nanomark level. Maybe we can define a couple thousand nanomarks in the brain, then you can establish the cause correspondence that cause across all human brains, and that might be the best scale. We don't know. So my group is still working on this problem, define the best scale to define human commonality and individuality. Okay. So once you have the common pattern established across all human brains, and then what are the individuality or the variation? That's another fundamental question. So when we do the comparisons, we need to compare the comparable component. And also we need to look at the components that are specific to an individual, right? like a brain tumor. So in tumor, the tumor can be located anywhere, any place in the brain, any size, any shape. How are you going to compare them? So this is a fundamental problem. That's, of course, it disease the brain. But in the health brain, you, we have the same problem. Even you have queens, there could be some subtle difference between two brains in terms of structure, function, connectivity. So that's the structure level. If you look at the functional field, the variability is even bigger. So I have been working on functional mind for over 10 years. So if we are familiar with functional mind, we are looking at the brain's functional activities and neural activities, uh, indirect measurement and neural activity by the bold FM singular. Then we are looking at the brain activity patterns by whole brain FM data. So there are so many ways to analyze FMI data. So for example, people can use it. 
I see a general linear models, plus coding, diction learning, deep learning in these days. How to represent a common brain function? That's another fundamental question. And how to map the common patterns in brain function and also individual patterns in brain function? And then what are the relationships between brain structure and function? So that's another fundamental problem. So I think the driving force for my recent 18, 19 years research is to look at the commonality and individuality of the brain in terms of the structure and the function and the relationship and in health brain and the disease brain. So the dimension is so big, different dimensions. A lot of unknown things to study in the future, but I think that's a very promising research area. And the good thing is I have trained around the 20 PhD students already. They're looking at the different angles of this same problem. So that's that's one of the fun part of being a professor in the field. You have more and more students that are going to continue this direction and looking at better and better uh, result, and there we are going to deepen our understanding of the human brain. What is really fascinating about your approach, Professor Liu, is that you start with a very, uh, let's say, what people term as a basic research question. So you start with really, really fundamental questions, but you also consider the clinical aspects of it. So how understanding those fundamental aspects can help in the clinical diagnosis problem, even understanding the disease itself, because some of these diseases are so difficult to even comprehend what's going wrong, as you are describing. So was it really a conscious decision to do it like that, or it happened because of how you trained or your career? I think that there is two reasons. The first reason is from the scientific perspective, so, you know, if you want to understand the human, health of human brain or normal brain, it will be very helpful for you to understand the disease brain. So, for example, in the cortical folding area, I have been talking a lot in the past 20 minutes. If you look at the abnormal pattern, folding pattern, like in brains, brain disease, like autism, like polymicrogyra, what's going on if the brain's folding pattern is abnormal? You can look at those disease brains to looking for a causal effect. So that's a very important perspective from a science perspective. Another is more practical perspective. For example, we need to go to NIH for granular applications. If you want to write an NIH grant, you have to study brain disease, like Alzheimer disease. I have been working on Alzheimer disease for at least 15 years. My NIH career was, was about computer-aided diagnosis of Alzheimer disease. Okay. So if we only design better or innovative algorithms, you have to work on some brain disease and do like a pattern classification to test and evaluate an algorithm and also get enough funding so that you can support your graduate students and you can publish, you can travel, you can go to conference. That's very practical. And also it's a very good contribution to the disease field, right? And the people working on brain disease like Alzheimer's disease, autism, they desperately need the computational tools to help them to study brain disease. Okay, this is another important contribution as well. So both practical and the theoretical angles. So we have to work on brain disease. That's wonderful. So I guess this is probably something where since you said almost for two decades, you have been involved in this general problem. I guess the, the good thing also I have seen that you not only publish in the Mikai, TMI, media, that 
society, but you also bridge to the more neuroimaging. Uh, so neuroimage, you said cerebral cortex. So that's a very, let's say traditionally two very uh, class, different clusters that you are trying to bridge. I guess you also are talking about during this process of algorithmic development to bridge these clusters, you have seen all right, starting from ICA to dictionary learning, sports representation to deep learning. So how how basically the field has changed over 20 years? So we don't normally get people as senior as you. So this is a very curious question to you. Thanks. I think Alvin, this is a great question. I think this is a really kind of the three pinnacles of my career. Three pinnacles. One pinna is the neuroscience. Personally, I'm interested in neuroscience theory, fundamental theory, how the brain is formed, how the brain develops, how to represent the human brain function, since fundamental question like that. So that's why we publish a lot of papers in like general cerebral cortex, general uh, neuroscience, developmental neuroscience, all kinds of many different types of neuroscience journals. And I think the second thing is the imaging, okay? So like MRI, like uh, microscopy, like optical imaging, like molecular imaging, because we have to look at the brain behavior, brain development from both like millimeter scale all the way to neuron scale, right? We have to use a lot of different imaging modality. One example is here. So I have been working on DTI for over a decade, maybe 15 years. You know, DTI deficient test imaging is kind of very low resolution. At this moment, you can go to two millimeter isotropic for the home brain at the most. If you look at there, or you can go to one millimeter isotropic in using most recent MRI uh, machines. That's not enough. One millimeter isotropic cubic will involve millions of neurons. So that's why I work on animal model a lot. One animal model is mouse. We, we use the ion connectivity atlas produced by the ion Institute for Brain Science. They're doing kind of cellular level neuron tracing using uh, all kinds of technologies. So they can inject the virus from one location brain and the virus will propagate to another location brain so they can trace this axon at the cellular level, at the microscope level. So one of my students, Hanbol, anybody know Hanbol he worked on that data set to integrate the neuron tracing data with the diffusion tensor imaging data and cross-validate this diffusion tensor imaging data. And it turns out that only 70% of fibers are obtained by diffusion tensor imaging are correct and 30% of them are just false positive. So that's another example. We have to use new imaging technology from MI, from neuron tracing, from microscopy to cross-validate each other to link them into multiple scales, okay? So that, that's why I published quite a few papers in imaging journals, like general MI, neural imaging, all kinds of very hardcore imaging journals. And the third thing is computational, right? MIKI, YPMI, TMI, medical image analysis, transaction biomedical engineering, all kinds of traditional image analysis, general conference. Uh, so we publish a lot, of course, in this domain. So, so as you mentioned, to move this field forward, for myself, for my research area, I have to know both neuroscience, imaging technology, and the computation tools. Computation tools, of course, most recently about the deep learning, right? Deep learning is super good. It works 
perfect for logistic data set. You can figure out what is the best feature and pattern describing the data. You can use autoencoder to do the feature extraction. You can use all kinds of different layers to extract different hierarchical feature patterns. And that's what we did in the human brain. If you look at the deep learning model of Ackerman data, we can perfectly find the hierarchical organization of brain networks. That's never seen before, because if you use shallow models like ICA, PCA, dictionary, whatever, what do you do? You just look at the one scale, and you can never see such a hierarchical organization brain architecture. And you know what? The brain is organized in a hierarchical fashion, all the way from neurons to microscale brain networks. So we have to use most recent advanced models, computation tools like deep learning, all kinds of deep learning we can use it, like a CNN to look at the volumes, we can use an LSTM to look at time series, we can look at the NAS, neural architecture search, look at the optimization of the networks in the brain. So as you name it, so as a uh, senior researcher or young scientist in this field, we have to look at all the related components in three domains. So that's another kind of suggestion for our new scientists, young scientists and your students. So keep your eyes open and do not just focus on your study of field. Sometimes if you jump to another field, they may have completely different views and they can really bring your research to the next level. For example, you work on cancer. You have to know the cancer biology. You have to know the all kinds of cancer imaging modalities. You have to know all kinds of bioinformatics, imaging, all kinds of tools to truly understand the problem you're working on, not just the tools you're working on. As a computer scientist, you know that no tool will prevail for a long time. Sooner or later, there'll be the past, right? They will not be said about, even for deep learning. I believe maybe five years later, 10 years, we have brand new tools and we may not use the CNN at all. Right, we are using transformers, right? We do not use LSTM, we use transformers, right? Things like that. So we have better tools than even better than transformers in the future. We never, we never know. We just integrate all these deep learning tools, computing tools. And many years ago, we never have such a powerful GPUs. We don't have cloud computing. We don't have such kind of thing. Now we can integrate everything into this kind of integrated distributed computer system and large scale computing infrastructure that can really revolutionize our study. So I think that's kind of the comprehensive skill set our young scientists or students should have to, to bring your research to really to the next step. Yeah, that's actually quite wonderful. So I basically always, uh, like this is, I think those of you who would be seeing this episode, this is a really, really important information to take because quite often these days, well, not these days, but maybe the live Mikais of last few years that, that has so much, I don't know, hot air where everyone is confident that their pixel peeping deep neural network is better than everybody else's, that nobody is listening to every, anybody else. That, that's a very, uh, I don't know, it, it was a funny sort of environment in the Mikai society itself that nobody really 
thought about the big picture view like you are describing they are always about my neural network is better than your neural network because my average dice is 2% better on whatever publicly available data set so that's that's something i think is very interesting but at the same time i guess you need to be a pi uh, who has that vision to actually bring multiple fields together, right? Because it's not well, really the PhD's job to do that. It The PI has to give the vision. So what would be your message to the young PIs as well? I think, yeah, I think um, this is a challenging time for young PIs. So the competition is really, really high. No matter what topic you work on, there are a lot of competitions. So my suggestion to young PI is that you have to work on some problem, one or two problems in your field very, very deeply, okay? And be the front, uh, front frontiers of your topic. And then, of course, another suggestion is establish good collaborations. Your collaborators, your good collaborators will help you a lot, okay? So that's my experience. So even though I work on imaging, work on computation tools, working on neuroscience, I benefit a lot from my collaborators. If you don't have those collaborators, you cannot do anything in that topic. So for example, one example is my collaborator in Drosophila brain. He helped us design experiment to do AFM, atomic force microscopy of neurons. Myself, I cannot never do that. My student cannot do that. Uh, but our collaborator can help us design experiment to do that. Another example is Anim Brain Institute they develop kind of brain act uh, kind of atlas and they share the data. I have to collaborate with them, get the experience how to use the data to map the neurons at uh, axons at the cellular level. So collaboration is very important. I think Anivan, uh, Henry, you're doing a great job. I think you are keeping your eyes open, look at your future collaborations, look at the opinion from different uh, field people, and that's great. I think that's the key message. So one, do your own research in a very deep fashion and seek collaboration, seek help from your collaborators. That's wonderful. Another question around the idea that like you are mentioning right now, that field of deep learning is moving more like we don't even know five years later, will, will it be deep learning the next new thing that works or some other method, steep learning, which is better than deep learning and we right. move into that. And that's fine as a, let's say, as more of a practical user of these methods than the core developer of the methods. But I guess once you start working on these practical problems, like you are describing the the images that you get, be it like the DTI, you said like the isotropic re resolution is so low versus some other uh, imaging techniques. So these imaging formats have certain physical properties, right? Based right. on their acquisition. All the deep neural networks, these are developed for mainly, let's say for ImageNet or MNIST or Cypher 10, that kind of computer vision data sets. So right. these are not really meant to be used out of the box for our kind of problems. So what's your viewpoint in actually adapting those methods into our problems? I think that's another great question. So a lot of tools and methods that were developed in computer vision or NLP, so probably you 
I don't know if you are familiar with the natural language process or not. A lot of deep learning concepts came from NLP, like transformer, right? And uh, so my perspective for the future is we can have a two-way contribution in both domain of metric imaging or brain imaging and artificial intelligence. Let me tell you a kind of new research direction I am pursuing right now. You know, we never know what will be the next uh, hot uh, topic of deep learning or computation tool. You know, one of the biggest obstacles of deep learning is that we really don't know how wide it works and we don't know why sometimes it fails, okay? So one possible way is to leverage brain science knowledge learned from the human brain. So that's kind of the direction even Jeff Hinton is looking into, right? You need to study how the brain works, study how the brain's neural networks works. And then if you can figure out those principles, you can use those principles to guide the next generation of neural networks, not just artificial neural networks, but kind of networks that mimic the brain's networks. I think that will be the hot spot in the next few years, or maybe next few decades. And that's also another direction I'm looking into. So we do the opposite. We do the brain mapping, we do the neural network, we kind of do the section of the brain using ocular microscopy or ocular imaging, figure out the fundamental principles of brain neural networks. See how they process information, see if they are doing the back propagation or not, or they have better mechanisms to do the back propagation. If we can de discover that principle, why not adopt them to the artificial neural networks, right? That could be a next kind of frontier of research, okay, for both neuroscience, for both computational neuroscience and for artificial intelligence. I think a lot of people are moving into this direction. Yeah, that's quite interesting, basically, that you can bring uh, the knowledge from the brain structure and functional understanding into designing your next generation of learning algorithms to basically get better data efficient, better robustness, better generalization, all these properties that humans have and currently the neural networks lack. So National Science Foundation in the United States, they just published a call a few weeks ago, a call for the fundamental understanding and the neuroscientific understanding of deep learning. So one aspect is mathematical and statistics foundation, another is neuroscience foundation for the deep learning. So I think there will be a lot of research going on in the coming few years, and uh, I think it's a very promising area. Yeah, that's quite wonderful. So I guess probably another very interesting question is that you have a very interdisciplinary perspective of how, like, and I guess you have to be interdisciplinary if you are looking, working in the biomedical imaging and the med yeah. computer science, uh, this cross section. But traditionally, so you, you sit, you are a professor of computer science. So you sit in a computer science department and yeah. traditionally computer science department was about publishing in computer science style conferences, journals. So how, what was your strategy to convince that, okay, so, 
be going beyond is also important and they should not evaluate you as a faculty because you published in a 12 impact factor journal but that's not traditionally computer science i think yeah we have to do a good balance so for example if you look at my publication uh, list i do publication i do publish in cvpr i do publish in nifs i do publish in kdd i do publish asm multimedia so I do publish in traditional computer science conference and journals like TIP. I have published at least uh, 14 different actual transaction journals from TIP to DHCS VT uh, to multimedia to uh, BME to uh, net image. So I think that's that's kind of a component of computer science, right? So we design algorithms, but we did algorithms for biometric imaging data. So if you look at the whole field of data science, what is data science? You can look at the imaging data, of course. Imaging data, you can look at traditional natural images, or you can also look at three-dimensional or four-dimensional metric images. So they are imaging data. So you can design all kinds of new methods, new models for that. So that's so you have to do some of hardcore computer science stuff if you want to stay in computer science development. And then, of course, you do interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work. You collaborate with neurology, you collaborate with BME, all kind of biomedical stuff. So that's totally fine. Another interesting problem, since you mentioned the tradition of computer science culture, become very interesting in the privacy and the security in the biomedical domain. You know, in the Mikai field, very few people care about the privacy and the security of data until federated learning came into place, right? Why you want to do learning? Because you want to do learning in one hospital or in one institution, and you, you want to aggregate learning in different institutions, then you do further learning. To deal with kind of medical data sharing problem, you know, if you want to go move the medical imaging domain into the next stage, for example, there will be a lot of data sharing activities. How to share data security and preserving the patient privacy is a huge problem. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when we published Mikai paper, if you review a Mikai paper, if I say you use like 40 or 30 patient data, that's enough for SVM. And you know it's overfitting, right? Then you go to 400, that's enough, like five years ago. You know it's still overfitting. Now you go to 5,000, it's still overfitting. What do you do? If you look at why UK buy a bank, they have 40, 400,000, like almost a half a million. It's still sufficient if you look at the brain, huge amount of brain variation and variability. Half a million brain images are not sufficient to cover the brain's variability. Absolutely not enough. What do you do? You have to share the data. How do you share that data? You have to share data privately and securely, right? So, and how to deal with this problem? My, I, I'm collaborating with a couple of computers, hardcore computer science scientists. We need to do better encryption. For example, called homomorphic encryption. We can do deep learning on encrypted data, right? That's a very hardcore problem. And medical domain, medical image analysis has a huge need in, the, in this domain, okay? Privacy and security. So that's another example. So we have to work on some level of computer science hardcore problems and then collaborate with different disciplines. So don't worry, once you do good work, it's okay. <laughs> That's the fundamental problem. Now, it's fundamental 
principle we have to do good work that's cool i mean this is really uh, what you mentioned makes total sense that when data sharing between institutions was not that common even the hospitals were not very open maybe not even digitized to actually share wow. the data and now the world has changed but i guess one thing that that really comes back in your discussions again and again is how much you value collaboration so the question really is that at you just don't collaborate with computer scientists you collaborate from many different disciplines be it the biologists radiologists different imaging experts so i guess you have to talk basically different language necessarily to 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 each of the experts that's not something which academia teaches you that's something that basically your life's lesson uh, for the 20 years you have been doing it i don't believe during your phd you learned any of it so what what was your strategy what worked and what are the things that doesn't work there yeah i think uh, that's kind of the hard part to do multidisciplinary collaboration so you have to speak your collaborative language sometimes to better communicate so My experience is this before I moved to computer science department in UGA I stayed in radiology department for 6 years kind of immerse yourself in such environment and work with those experts on a daily basis so that's a very good experience so another uh, experience I'd like to share is uh, when I received my energy career award energy KOI award I had the opportunity to take a one year neuroscience course in medical school. You know, I took quite a few neuroscience neurology course with medical students in medical school. We do a clinical ground round with them. We see how they diagnose patient, we see how they uh, do brain cut the brain into pieces, for example, do histology. I think such a never experience is really helpful. So for example, anyone if you want to get into a specific area for your cancer one way you can consider is spend your whole summer with a neurosurgeon doing brain tumor for example or with another and like oncologist or surgical oncologist or medicine oncologist or radiation oncologist whatever topic you work on spend a few months with your collaborator in the clinic setting that will help you a lot you really see the problem you really see the challenge you really see the true problem you want to solve you want to see what can help the need and then you can see how you can contribute that's really very really helpful yeah that's really wonderful i i mean we have been trying to do that for some time here around different university med- medical hospitals so our phd's try wow. like sometimes sit within the radiology departments and try to work in close collaboration with the radiologists but yeah this is a really difficult thing so it's really good to know from you that that actually helps in the longer run yes i think so yeah we we have a lot All right, I would have one final question maybe. Basically, as a computer scientist, I often have the problem of the curse of knowledge. If I want to talk to people who are not uh, directly involved in my field, I often fall back to my computer science mode where I try to talk in computer science terms and nobody understands. Do you have any recommendation to overcome this curse of knowledge or do you have this experience yourself sometimes? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the experience you have when you start a collaboration. So the main aspect they may not understand computer science language. So one approach is to uh, just 
as I mentioned before, try to speak the language another way, right? So that means you have to either learn the language in your collaborator's domain or then learn your language in your domain. Either way, right? Otherwise, you cannot communicate. It's very hard. Try to experience and try to learn some uh, kind of skills to talk to kind of lay person. Okay, so that's kind of training. I think our computer science students, our, com our computer science professionals should have used the lay language to introduce some of the topic. For example, before you talk to the domains, we talk to your grandma, talk to anyone who might not know anything about the domain and see if they understand. So I think that's kind of the practice you need. So I think um, there's no short way to do that, okay? There's no shortcut. So my experience, you have to practice. Either learn your domain expert language or learn how to speak your language in the uh, language. So for example, if you talk to somebody and know nothing but different, you talk about Reno, who knows what is Reno, mm -hmm. right? So you can ask your language to like activation function. You may know nothing about activation function. You may even simplify the activation function to say, hey, we need to make some decisions about the input and output, right? They may understand. We need to decide what to do with this input. Then your decision is the kind of activation function, right? You want to respond in some level. So any language could have, depends on the kind of technical skills you're the person you talk to. I think that takes some time to really understand. So. So sometimes I talk with my younger son who is uh, six years old about brain science. So <laughs> tell tell him what is brain cell, what, tell him how the brain works, things like that. So yeah, so do some of this practice and you will understand how to communicate the idea with some lay person. And, yeah. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess those who are trained in the computer science way and really like, talk about deep learning and join or go attend one of the middle or Mikhai conferences, they basically don't realize that they are not talking to the medical imaging or medical community at all. They are still talking to computer scientists who do medical imaging. So it's a very, very long way. And there are absolutely no shortcuts, no syllabus that prepares you for that. Oh. So yeah, I think the Mikai field is just too hard about the deep learning models and the deep learning languages, the kind of short of the language towards radiology, towards clinic practice, towards uh, physicians. I think that's a really problem. I think that's a real problem. We are kind of a more and more isolated group talking about our own things. And uh, we are not translating these things into clinic practice. We are not communicating with practice with practitioners. You know, less and less clinical physicians are attending Mikhail. That's a big problem, you know, in the recent 10 years. I mean, this Mikhail, I think they're starting a new thing called Clinical Day uh, in yeah, Mikhail. That's right. I'm really that's looking right. forward to that to see how, like, finally, some collaboration, some, or some at least exchange of thoughts. That's something that would be really interesting to see. Yeah. So on that note, I guess I want to thank you once more, Dr. Liu, Professor Liu, for your wonderful time. You have been a mentor to me for, I don't know, for the last decade, at least, if not more. 
I remember we attended Mikhail 2012 together in France, right? Yeah. You started your PhD study in Eugene 2010 or something? Yeah, around that time I started in 2010. We have been interacting for at least one decade. Yes. So yeah, and it was like uh, like you are a mentor for me in the Mikai Society, and it's really wonderful to have you in the first season of AIAD Healthcare. So yeah, I, I think the Mikai Society and all the new people will learn a lot from listening to this discussion. So on that note, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the best for the upcoming adventures in your research field. Thanks so much, Andrew and Harry, for the opportunity to share my experience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this insightful discussion. Thanks. Bye.